There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello, Australia. Welcome to My Millennial Money. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, we've got a cool episode planned. We've got Sim from Girls That Invest, which is a really popular Instagram page. You can jump in and check that out. And also, Sim and Sonia, they run a podcast by the same name, Girls That Invest. Sim, welcome to the podcast. Well, welcome back to My Millennial Money, the podcast. Thank you for bringing me back. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited about today. The um, first episode that we did was really fun. We got like a lot of great feedback on it. So, good to be back. Love it. Now, Sim and I will be answering your questions that we asked you uh, on the My Millennial Money Instagram page. And we're going to get right to that. But we can't do our Tuesday show without our show partner, Tao. That's T-A-L. As one of Australia's leading life insurers, Tao are committed to protecting people, not things, and helping you look after what matters most if something goes wrong with your health. Search TAL online, that's T-A-L, or speak to your financial advisor today about how TAL can protect you and your family. If you need an advisor, you can head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and I'll introduce you to an advisor and you can ask them about how TAL can help with you and your family. So, it's now time to get into the episode with Sim from Girls That Invest. You ready to uh, answer some questions, Sim? Yes, I can't wait. Okay, first cab off the rank, Caitlin, new career, $100,000 income and congratulations, that's banging. What's the best thing to do next regarding building wealth? So, what would you say to Caitlin Sim? That's a good question. I think um, with starting off in a job where your income is quite high and um, Caitlin, I assume is a millennial as well, I think- the first step that I took when I was in a similar position was making sure that I didn't fall into lifestyle inflation, which I guess is not building wealth, but it's more stopping yourself from spending everything, which is such a foundational thing because you kind of look at yourself and you're like, I'm making six figures. Like I deserve a nice car. I deserve like the finer things now because it's such a benchmark. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I would probably really encourage Caitlin, like, the best investment that you can ever make is in yourself. And it sounds like you've done that with your career, but how can we now invest into your own habits and behaviors? And it's funny, Sim, like, I wonder if Caitlin could have a rule in her life where, you know, every big financial decision and not including the home. So, whether it's a car, a lounge, um, insert new fridge here or something like that. What if she made the decision that, well, I'm never going to go into consumer debt to buy a fridge or I'm just going to save up and pay cash for cars and just not even enter that cycle of consumer debt. That's a really good idea. And I think also speaking about that, like I remember when I was in that stage, I read somewhere like some lecturer had said, when you graduate or when you take up that six-figure job, keep living like you were making your previous income. Um, And because you're already doing it, it's easier to stick to that than to become a huge spender, a huge splurger, and then try to like backtrack on that. Absolutely. I heard a funny quote. Well, it's kind of a cool quote. It, It says, the rich ask how much, the poor ask how much per month. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess like it's kind of a sad quote. It is. Well, okay, I, I'll just unwind that because, you know, we're not talking about extreme world poverty, okay? We're talking about middle class Australia, middle class, insert your country here, 
that binges on credit and they go to, you know, the JB Hi-Fi's of the world or the Hardly Normals or who's your big kind of chain in this uh, in New Zealand? There's, do you have you heard of Noel Leeming? Is that a thing there? I, I when I was in New Zealand to write my book, I bought a monitor from Noel yeah. Leeming or Leemings or whatever it was. Yeah, that's kind of like our big place. But we we have Harvey Norman as well, you know. Yeah. So the so that's kind of a tongue in cheek quote that we've got to get to the point where when we're successful with money, we walk into these shops and we say, "How much for the fridge? What's the best price you can do?" As opposed to how much is this per month? Mm. Oh, yeah. I, I see where you're coming from. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, again, I think I've already, last week on the podcast, I already said my blanket sorry for the <laughs> year. It's for offending everyone. So, <laughs> so, I'm not apologizing. So, yeah, when I say poor, I'm not talking about extreme world poverty uh, because, you know, you need to be generous and you need to give to organizations like the life you can save. But um, anyway, we're going a bit off track here. So, I I just think it's great. So, building wealth, you know, once we nail our own personal behaviors, once we get to this stage of, okay, I've got what I need to set up my life. And just on that, Sim, like, do you think, you know, you've just walked into this new job and new career. I think, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is having the systems and processes because, we don't want to just go, okay, I've got an extra $2,000 a month. I'm just going to buy shares or, um, you know, invest in this or that. I think we always need to go back and say, well, what do we want to achieve? Because if it is buying a new lounge, well, save up, buy a lounge and that's done. You don't have to buy a new lounge for three years now. Like get the big stuff in your life sorted first, because when we invest money, we want to do it for the long term. We don't want to withdraw it a month later to buy something. Yeah, that's a good point. Would you recommend re like just say Caitlin has like a budget or a rough idea and let's say now her new job is maybe a little bit more than what she's had. Would you say reorganize your budget, like do a completely new budget or just keep everything the same but change your proportions? I'd probably review it. I mean, so the Glenn James spending plan that a lot of you have completed When you fill out the spreadsheet, there's two, well, there's kind of two main budget styles in a business. There's bottom up and top down, and we can explain that, but it's a bottom up budget. And that means we put all our expenses in, we put our income in, and then it tells us how much we've got left over. So, I think the reason I made it as a bottom up, so we're going on a profit and loss statement, the bottom of the P&L is expenses. So, we're looking at all the expenses going up and then we say, okay, well, we need to earn X amount to meet those expenses and then more so there's profit. The reason I did the bottom up is whether you're at uni or you're a family of four with three kids and you're working in the workforce, I fundamentally believe we've all got fixed expenses in our life. Would you agree, Sim? Yeah, absolutely. So, I think we need to get to the point where we need to know how much it costs us to exist. And then once we know that, then we can look at what we're doing with the leftover money. So, in rejigging the budget, absolutely. But I will say, like, are you a spender or saver? I, oh, you know what? I am one or the other. So, I will go a long period of time where I don't spend a single cent. I eat at home. Like, the other day, I was just, I craved McDonald's so badly and I was driving right up to it and I was like, no. And I, just, I was like, if I stay on this lane, I can't get into McDonald's. So, I'm just going to go home. So, I'll go, through, <laughs> I'll go through periods like that. And then I'll go through periods where I'm like, well, I've already spent two grand. What's another $500? Yeah. Okay. So, you oscillate a little bit. I guess, I don't know where I was going with that, but oh, this is where I was going. Because I'm a spender, <laughs> I do everything through the lens of a spender and some of you savers need to learn from this lens a little bit, like, because you're allowed to enjoy your money. You know, if you were at uni and you were living on chicken feed, like, I would imagine that now that you've got a full-time job, well, you might want to get takeaway once a week without stressing about it now. You know, we're not spending it all on stuff like your lecturer said, but can we get to the point where, all right, we've got money, we can actually start to enjoy life now. So, I would adjust it a little bit like, okay, I want to add a little bit of money so I can start to enjoy my life. But I think it just goes back to keep out of debt, 
save some money, enjoy your life. <laughs> That's a good point. I remember like a, a few months into working, my dad mentioned that he was like, why do you still act like you're a student? Like, why do you still drive that beaten up car? Like, it was really interesting. He was like, you should drive a car of, you know, someone in your profession. I was like, what does that mean? You know? Mm. Yeah. So, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I would just think, you know, once we sort out all that stuff, then we can look at what we are to invest in. I will say one thing on this before we move on. If you're like Caitlin and you don't have a new career and you're listening and you might be 45 years old, I fully believe that we can always learn from all of these questions. So, my challenge is if you have been just on autopilot for the last few years, you can always pause and go, all right, I need to actually review all of this. And, you know, it is the start of a year. It's a really good time to see what you want your year to look like in terms of your lifestyle goals and your financial goals and just press pause and swing back around and say, okay, what do I need to do here? Mm, That's a really good way of putting it. So, anyway, my answers are worth what you paid for them. So, have you got another question there, Sim? So, there's a question here by Katrina who says, thoughts on navigating different investing risk profiles within a relationship? That's a good question. It is. Well, relationships, they're risky within themselves. <laughs> I don't, I can't say I've got much to add on this, but I do have, um, I would, I guess my family's experience and between like my parents, one of them is like, let's go invest, you know, let's be very proactive. Um, and one of them, and just the way that they've grown up, you know, coming to a new country, you're kind of more in the mindset of we need to save as much as we can. We need to establish ourselves as much as we can. And so one of them has always been, I guess, the one that pulls back and one that's kind of shooting forward. And I would say the one that who the one that kind of pulls back was a little bit stronger. And so nothing ended up happening and they didn't ever invest in the stock market, um, you know, in real estate. Um, and if anything, I think that kind of taught me to be more risky just because I saw what happened when you don't take any action. Mm. Do you share publicly that you're in a relationship on your podcast? No. <laughs> do I need to edit that out? <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> so, so do you guys like share money yet or anything like that? Um, no, everything's separate. Um, like I've got my own house, you know, he's got his own house, um, but... We, we talk about it. We talk mm. about it like every week and it's very mm. open. Like we'll show each other like this is what I've invested in. This is what I've done. This is how much my mortgage is. Like everything is very open. And when we started like talking, we were very open about like our goals and, and all of that. But no, we don't talk about it on the podcast, I guess. Mm. Do you and your partner, do you guys ever talk about and this isn't an interview sim about her relationship. It's just, <laughs> do you ever like, all right, well, if we get together and get married and we're together forevermore, amen. Like, do you think you guys will join all your money? I think in marriage, yes. But if we weren't, then no. Yeah, sure. I wouldn't want to. Like, I think I'm very independent. This is my life. This is what I've done without you. So mm. that's that line there. Yeah. Buy your own damn coffee. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Now, <laughs> I can't speak for this on my own personal experience, but we can just use some basic wisdom and I can draw on my experience from being a financial advisor. You know, when we'd have a couple come into the room, particularly around their superannuation, and one had a high risk profile and one had a lower risk profile, we're like, all right, let's work out our individual risk profiles. That's your super. You can have the high risk profile. That's your super. You can have the low risk profile. There you go. Move on. Enjoy life. Now, if we're talking about a joint investment account, I think there could be a combination of things. Number one, if someone had a high growth risk profile and somebody had a quite balanced or conservative risk profile, So, one had a 90% growth and one had a 50% growth. I believe there could be some education from both sides about, as you said, Sim, taking more risks and then on the other side, chilling out a little bit. Can we say, okay, well, 
we've clearly got two different risk profiles that are almost polar opposite. Can we meet in the middle? Like simple as that. That's just a practical thing that we could do. I'd seen it a lot in my practice. Uh, we've had a high risk profile in that person's super, a low one over here, the joint investment account that is outside of super. We've taken a, a more balanced growth um, profile. So you can do that. You could keep your own investment accounts in your own risk profiles. Like there's no rules. I think the underlying rule with anything to do with money and relationships, transparent communication, do what works for both of you and don't proceed if one person's got a big problem with something because it's only going to end wild. And by ending wild, like Sim, you said, ending wild, we didn't have any growth because we didn't take any risks or invest into anything or it could be ending wild like um, oh, we put the house on Bitcoin and that tanked. Like <laughs> choose your wild, it's going to end there. Like, so I think it's just always got to be on the same page and having that open discussion. Yeah, for sure. I, I have to say, I can't imagine what it would be like. And maybe this just speaks about like, what kind of person I am, but I can't imagine how difficult it must be to be someone that just wants to invest and then having to feel like you've got to compromise on that. Like, what would you do in that situation, you know? Also, like if I wanted to invest hardcore and I was with someone who wasn't keen to invest hardcore. Yeah. I think it all goes back to education um, on, on both accounts. Like, you know, we need to be educated on why we do have to take some risks above cash, but we have to be educated on why we don't just put all of our money in one single stock that's in a fringe industry. Mm-hmm. Like, because I just fundamentally believe with money, we just need to learn enough to make our own decision. And if it's way too complex, just walk away. Um, so I just, and this is the exact reason why we do this podcast and we have these discussions. And that's the exact reason, like you do an online investing course and uh, we can talk about that after the break, but like, it's all about education and learning and understanding the concepts. Then once you learn and understand the concepts, well, the rest is easy to take care of itself, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So, there you have it. Good luck, Katrina. All right. Here's one for you, Sim. From SM Gooley. Say you had a large sum of money but didn't need it for three years. Do you drop it into an ETF or hold it in cash? And when we talk about cash in the money world, it's not literally notes under the bed. It's more in an online savings account or in a, in a bank account. So, what are you doing in that situation? Oh, three years is like a tricky number because if someone had said like 10 years or 20 years, you know, that that to me for myself would be easily like, you know, put it in an ET if that makes sense to me. Three years is kind of on the cusp. And I would say, you know, if, if I was in that position, I would have to think, what am I comfortable with? And if it was, I only have you know, $10,000 and I need exactly $10,000 by three years and I don't believe I'm going to be able to get that any other way, then I would probably keep it in a term deposit and, you know, be okay with the fact that, yes, you can, I could try and make money from this, but it's just too important for me to mess around with. Or um, if it was something that I was willing to take a risk on, for example, with my home deposit, I began saving at the start of 2020 thinking I would need it at the end of 2021, so almost two years. Um, And I did put that in the stock market, but I was okay with the idea of if things turn to crap, I, you know, let's say I lost half of it, I would just keep saving and I guess I'd buy a house, you know, maybe five years later rather than two years. And so it was just a risk that I was willing to take. And I guess it just depends on what you're saving for and what you're okay with losing or not losing. Mm. It's a really good answer. You should start a podcast and an investing Instagram page. I might call it Girls That Invest. Do it, dare you. Yeah, I wrote down three things as well, and I think they're much the same. Number one, do nothing, keep it in cash, because I believe, you know, less than five years minimum, you don't want stuff in the market. Particularly if it's a hard goal, you know, you've got kids that are finishing school and you need money for a XYZ or something like that. The third one, because I'll go back to the second point last, the third one is exactly what you did with your home loan. You're like, I'm putting it all in. 
if I have to push out my goal because there's no hard line, I'm happy with that because I understand the risks. Mm-hmm. If it's a bit of a maybe and you had the $10,000, why not do half-half? Because then you've made your own. And this actually, this is very philosophical. And on the um, My Millennial Money Express podcast, I actually did an episode on um, modern portfolio theory. And I also talked about it in the book that I wrote. Um, You know, if you did, for example, $5,000 in an ETF that was the Australian top 200 companies, and then in a portfolio that was $5,000 just in your bank account, that $10,000 has a risk profile of 50-50 growth and defensive, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem is with the 50% growth portion, we don't have any diversification. We've got Australian only. So, we don't have any uh, risk in international markets. So, the question is, do we just buy like the Vanguard balanced growth, which is 50-50 diversified international Australian and not have 50% in cash. So, yeah, very very philosophical. Um, But I think as a rule of thumb, anything under five years, be cautious, buy, beware, right? Yeah, three three years is just that kind of funny time where you could or you couldn't and it also just depends on your risk profile. Like, if you're okay with some of it being lost, then, then why not? But if you really need that money and you're not okay, then sometimes doing the safer thing is the better thing. Mm. And I, I will, like, with respect and tell me to get stuffed, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> can you say that, get stuffed, Glenn, and then we can have it on file? <laughs> Let's see what you say. Okay. <laughs> you know, the word lost, for example, it's technically only lost if we sell out, right? True. So, it's this whole, like if, you know, you guys have Woolworths over there. No, what do you call it? Countdown. Countdown. You guys have Countdown in mighty New Zealand, right? Like if I invest $10,000 in Countdown or Woolworths in Australia, and I fundamentally believe that Countdown and Woolworths, they're always going to be around selling groceries if there is a bit of a choppy time in the markets and the valuation comes off and it's almost by half, you know, COVID and it goes down to $5,000, I've only lost, quote unquote, 50% of my money if I crystallize an exit, but the value is just reduced for that point of time. So, can you tell me to get stuffed now? Get stuffed, Glenn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just like drop that in every time I... <laughs> Let's take a break and we'll come back and talk about property. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, we're back. Do you hate me yet? <laughs> no, no, I don't. 
Oh, man. You've, you've got to be robust to deal with me, don't you? No, I don't know. Maybe someone said that to you, but you're not hard to deal with. Um, you should see what me and Sonia are like. We yell at each other. Like, she keeps interrupting me. I'll be like, Sonia, shut up. I'm trying to speak. Like, it's this is why we don't let anyone edit because we fight. And then you'll hear her, you'll hear her talk, and she'll be like, da da da. And she'll be like, Mom, I'm podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. It's wild. So there's a property question here, and I'll get you to share some of your story. Ebony Otto, and I actually posted Ebony a copy of my book because she wrote a question in that. Um, my book would answer. She said, tips for home buyers under 21, buying a property, saving for a deposit. So, how, what what were the key takeaways when you saved for your home? Because you're 24 now. 25. I'm growing 25. Up. So, you know, Ebony's going to be at that age group pretty soon, right? So, what are the number one learnings that you had for saving for a deposit and buying your first home? I just want to start off by saying like to even think about this before 21 is really amazing. Like when I was 21, um, when I was in university, I guess I was kind of always that kid that liked to have side hustles and I would do that. But everything I would make, I would spend. And I remember looking back at my very last year in university, which was 2019, I made like 20 grand and I had like four grand left over by the end of the year. And I was like, I'm going to go to Korea and so I can't say that at that age, like at, at the age that she's at, I really knew what I was doing. But um, how I then went from that to buying a home and, and saving for a deposit tips include, I guess, one, like there's two ways of looking at it. One, yes, you need to save and be a good saver and have a good budget. But I saw that as maybe 10% of what it takes because with a budget, there's a flaw. Like you still need to feed yourself. You still need to pay rent if you're renting like I was. You, there's still things that you need to do. So there's only so much you can try and save and skimp out on. Um, and it was just more a matter of finding ways to increase my income, whether that be reading a book on negotiating and going head to head with my employer and asking for more of a raise or, um, you know, doing other side hustles. Like I would sell shirts and I would sell tote bags online um, and things like that, that were much more easier to grow a deposit than trying to not have, you know, takeaways once a week. Yeah. And I will say Ebony's actually 18 years old at the moment. Like how wild is that? an 18-year-old thinking about buying a property? My brother is 18 and I just can't comprehend him even asking a question like that. Yeah. So, really, like anyone listening to this podcast right now, if you're under 24, you're already a winner. Absolutely. Like, because you're just so dialed in. And, you know, we, we've probably got a lot of new listeners at the start of the year and all that. You know, it is my millennial money, but it's only because I'm a millennial and all these principles apply to everybody. And I just want to say to Ebony, there will be a sacrifice, possibly, and you've just got to pick your battles. Like, I know so many people who have bought their first home, yes, in these crazy times, and given it's not in the CBD of Sydney or whatever, but they haven't been driving around in a new car, towing a 30 grand car loan. They haven't been going out every weekend and dropping $300 on drinks and food. Like there's a sacrifice to a lot of stuff in life. So you've just got to choose your sacrifice. That's a good way of putting it. And I think if it also helps knowing that the sacrifices are only for so long, like Yes, it's it's hard, but if you say, okay, this is how much you need to save up over five years or, or three years, it's nice to know that there's an end date to it as well. Mm. Yeah, so just keep dialed in. Like, I just want to really encourage anyone that's wanting to buy their first home at any age, like, sacrifice. Something's got to give. Like, yeah. So just on that, there's a question here from Cap Zero. Is investing in property at age 50 too late? 
Not because you're older, but did you want to maybe answer this question? Yeah. Um, I'm not that much older than you, please. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually just put a big line through a word. And I've, I've rewritten this question. Is investing at age 52 late? And the answer is no. Um, is as long as you've got an income, as long as you've got future goals, as long as society is getting older and living longer, as long as you want to do the you of tomorrow a favour today, any age is appropriate. Now, the question with property, if I swing it back to property, um, 50, it's... It's no big issue. Um, I'll give you a, a wild example. In Australia, if you were 60 years old, for example, um, the banks or lenders may say, hey, we'll give you this loan for this $700,000 property, but we need some conditions. We need to have a look at exit strategies, which basically means, um, have you got any other wealth to pay off the debt? And a lot of the time with exit strategies, they say, okay, well, you might have $150,000 super over here. You've got another inheritance in an account over there of $300,000. So, if push comes to shove, we could clear the the debt. Now, so yeah, in your 50s, no big deal. If you've got a good income, all the normal principles come into play. You need three things to get a property. Number one, an income. Number two, um, some type of deposit or equity. And number three, I'll make up on the spot a property to buy. Now, the property to buy... (laughs) Yeah, I also do comedy on Saturdays. Um, The property to buy, again, the older that we get, the less chances that we've got to recover from taking risks. So, you just really want to make sure that you are choosing the right stock to buy. Um, Because if you get flushed financially at age 50, it's not as easy to recover if you get flushed financially at age 22. It's just simple. So, you really just have to make sure you're very strategic with the property purchase. And that's why I always encourage people to go and have a listen to the podcast, My Millennial Property, John Pigeon and Emily Wallace over there. They live and breathe this crap and you'll be really encouraged. If you need to speak with John Pigeon about, you know, getting a property strategy, he does clarity calls. There's a podcast episode or two on this podcast or on the property podcast, just with people calling John and bouncing their own situation off them. So, the short answer is no, it's not too late. Can I just add, the mm. the podcast is actually very helpful. Like when I was trying to save up and buy, I went from the start and listened to every single episode. And I remember um, when I was like speaking to like agents and stuff, they were like, how do you know this? And I was like, I just listen to podcasts, like obviously. <laughs> do you find the podcast got exponentially better when I stopped being a host? <laughs> no, I'm not going to say yes, but, um, but Emily's really good. <laughs> she is. I, it was funny because I know I wanted to do a property podcast with John. So, we both did it and <laughs> I love podcasting and I love property but I just hated hosting that show because it was just another podcast that I had to do. So, it was so good when Emily joined because she brought this new uh, perspective and um, she's just lives and breathes it. And you want people hosting podcasts that are in that world every day, right? Like you and I, we're in personal finance and investing stuff every day. We're not really in property every day. No. Um, so, so, there you go. The quick question here from Sorx Prox. I can't even pronounce the name. When should I take funds out of, um, I think, investings if saving for a down payment? Oh, this is a good one. I So, what I did is I started off, like, let's just say, um, just to keep numbers simple, let's say I got $1,000 a week um, from my income and I was living very frugally. So, let's say I had $600 a week to either save or invest. Initially, all of that money was going to the stock market. And then when I realized I was getting closer and closer to my goal and realizing that, oh, I'm almost at 
Um, initially, my goal was fifty thousand. I was like, I'm almost at fifty thousand dollars now. The percentage of how much was going into the stock market versus like just a normal savings account started to shift. So it used to be like eighty percent. It used to be like eighty percent in stocks, and then twenty percent in my savings account, and then eventually 50-50 and then eventually more savings account heavy. So it wasn't that I decided on a certain date, I'm just going to pull all the money out. I was just not putting in as much. And then when I reached the exact number, so I kind of went backwards. I said, if I want to buy a $500,000 home, then I need a $50,000 deposit for a 10% uh, down payment. So when I reached $50,000 between stocks and shares, that's when I knew to pull money out. And I guess it ties in really um, closely with that, um, you know, withdrawing money uh, for a down payment. You know, if the COVID pandemic did happen at the time and the share portfolio was down 30%, well, okay, well, we're delaying this for a hot minute. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was a little bit lucky um, because when the market dropped because of like, you know, having good financial literacy, I was like, oh, this is going to come back. And so I chucked a lot of money um, in March and it just happened to be the bottom of the market. And so it it, it was quite a good um, situation. It went up quite quickly, but it's not that I knew it was going to happen. I just knew over the years it would happen. Hang on one sec. Can you hear that? Yeah. It sounds like someone's reversing. Yeah. You backing up to the market to dump money when COVID hit. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. Oh, my goodness. I, I would actually probably, yeah, it, it's a wild thing. In Australia, Sam, we've got this thing called the First Home Super Saver Scheme where people can basically save their money in a tax-sheltered environment in super. And I think that's probably the first move if you are looking to save and buy your first home. We'll put a link in the show notes for the YouTube uh, explanation that we did on that. But basically, it, it's just really like if you're saving for a down payment and you're not ready for four years, well, you're not taking it out. But if you're getting close to the pointy end and things are good, well, then you'd probably take it out. Um, there's no right or wrong. Um, we're running out of time. Have you got another 10 minutes? Yeah, no, I, there's no hard and fast rule. Five okay, was just more sorry. like a, a rough idea. She's just saying that because we talked for like 20 minutes before we hit record because I was trying to help. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so my personality, I'm a fixer and I'm a helper. Oh, I know. <laughs> you know what, though? I have to say, I'm the same, but it just hasn't happened back to me. So, I feel like this was very eye-opening. Yeah. Yeah. I'm- so, Sim, she's just bought a new microphone and all that, and we're just trying to get it optimal for her. So, all right, Sim, I want to talk about increasing money or increasing our world do you want to dig up a question there and we'll have a chew on that one and then I might swing around and ask you some other personal questions. Um, so, it's Rufasa said, how would you prioritise net worth growth for early 30s um, who have never had a change in industry? Um, that's a really good question. How would you prioritise network growth? I guess if you have had a change in industry, I think that's a good thing. Um, mm. And for a couple of reasons, just a lot of people think that sticking in one job and kind of climbing up the ladder in there is like the way to go because that's what we get taught. Um, but the most money that you make in terms of, um, you know, year on year within a nine to five is when you switch jobs, when you jump from one company to another. And so if you're switching industry, you can almost reinvent yourself. And some people look at it like, I'm new into this industry. I don't really know anything. But, you know, if you're in your 30s, you've clearly had a couple of years of other skills that you can transfer over. And it's a time to, yeah, I guess reinvent yourself and kind of walk in being like, no, 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 this is what I'd want to be paid. How do I get there? Yeah, I think a lot of it, you know, everything. And this is why, like, in my book, I spent the first part of the book really talking about mindset because the best thing that we can do to grow our net worth is transfer our human capital into growth assets. Now, our human capital, for those new and wondering what the hell I'm talking about, 
when we go to work and say, here's an hour of my time and they say, okay, well, here's $30 for that hour, you've just transferred you as a human to physical $30 capital. So, the question is, if I said, all right, over a 30-hour week, I'm going to take $1 from every hour and invest that, that $30 a week would be instantly go into your investment account and increase your net worth by $30. So, if we really look at that analogy and say, okay, well, how do I, you know, I've had a change in industry and I really want to maximize my human capital, that might mean more income. Now, I love what you said, Sim, about almost reinventing yourself. I was talking to somebody the other day, not a change of industry, but change of job, right? And the same thing. In their current job, um, really getting to the point where they were getting depressed from it, they felt like they were getting walked over, couldn't stand up to themselves, okay? And I was encouraging this person and I was like, well, what about in the new job, it's your first opportunity to present who you are and have the confidence to set clear boundaries. Like, oh no, I can't work back an extra eight hours tonight because I don't work for free. And I'm making like Karen hand gestures right now. It's like setting the tone basically. That's exactly the word, right? So, being bold and absolutely setting the tone of what you will put up with and what you won't put up with. I like that. I think, yeah, it's almost like new year, new me, but rather new industry, new me. Mm. But if you're listening and you're like, I really love my industry, I really don't want a new industry, How? and I don't want to start my own business, how can I increase my human capital? Well, I'm glad you asked, metaphorical Glenn. You need to start doubling down and doing some things. Can you join an industry association? Can you contribute and become a thought leader in the industry? Can you do something online? Like I know a guy, Aaron, shout out Aaron, uh, Aaron Johnson. He's a friend of mine. Um, He's a teacher. I think he's a principal or assistant principal at a school. Haven't seen him for a while. Um, He started a teacher's podcast. So, how do you do stuff that you can double down in the industry that you're in? Because all this stuff we're talking about, Sim, provided we're doing that hygiene stuff, if we swing it right back around to Caitlin's first question, new career, 100 grand, if we set those foundations of I've got no debt, I've got good systems, I've got good structures, I've got good habits, new industry, doubling down on all that stuff, coupled with understanding that I can transfer this human capital onto my balance sheet, I think it's just a win-win, right? Yeah, it really is. It's it's hard to go wrong with something like that. Sim, how do you personally invest? How do I personally invest? I, I kind of call it like my 90-10 rule. I don't think it's actually a rule. I think it's just what I like to do. Um, and so I, li- I actually keep like 90% of my money in something that I – understand and I really, you know, I'm all over it. I know the risks of it. I know what I'm getting myself into. I know, you know, roughly how much it annually should go up um, based off, um, you know, past performance. Not that you use past performance to know what's going on, but, you know, the S&P 500 to me is just my stock standard. It's like my version of like a white cotton on shirt. Like you just can't go wrong for me. Um, But I'm also someone that needs to, you know, mess around a little bit and I, I think I just need to fulfill that side of me. It doesn't make sense. It's a little bit, a little bit like diets, you know, you, you, you can't just go cold, at least I can't go cold turkey. So I like to keep 10% in what I call fun money and play money and, um, you know, I think some examples would be individual companies and cryptos. Uh, I haven't gotten into NFTs. I just... It's just a little bit too much research for the amount of time that I have right now. But if I was in university or I had a lot more free time, it would, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd be all over it. Um, so that's yeah, basically how I invest. It's very boring. So most of your investment portfolio 
is, well, 90% is out of uh, the US. So, the S&P 500, everybody, is the top 500 companies listed on any exchange in the United States. So, your, is there any rationale uh, with the S&P 500? As opposed to like the all the complete market or just no i'm talking about like um other exposure to other parts of the world i guess for me like if you really think about it the biggest companies in the world are from america apple google amazon um and so it just makes sense to me and so that's one thing and then the second thing is i was already quite well versed in like the u.s political sphere and so i spend a lot of time reading about that anyway and so for me having a good understanding about what's going on and you know reading the US news every day alongside like New Zealand news it's just easy to keep track of so I guess it's just a convenience factor if I was investing heavily in the Europe market as well then I feel like I'd have to do a little bit of reading in in that side and it yeah so I guess convenience and just the fact that some of the biggest companies in the world are there like out of the top six companies in terms of market cap, five to six of them are in the US alone. It's wild. And I wrote something down, which I think just underscores everything. And it was a quote by somebody. Do you want to know who said it and what was the quote? How am I going to guess that? Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the quote, (laughs) the quote was by Sim. And she just said, because it makes sense to me. And that should be the underpinning strategy for everyone's investments, right? Yeah. It's, I guess it's different for everyone. Yeah. Because it might make sense to the uni student to do NFTs. I mean, I'd caution putting 100% of your money or 90% of money in NFTs, but, but that's, that's awesome. It's just good because it's what you understand. And you know, I, I go pretty heavy into the S&P 500 for the exact reasons we can get exposure to China through companies in the US. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just there's so much for me, like I just love research and I love data and I love um, making choices based off numbers, which does make me sound a little bit like a nerd saying that out loud. But there's just so much because it's such a popular ETF or a popular index. There's just so much information. So when I was younger and I was researching, that was the one thing that I could find pages and pages of information on, you know, compared to some smaller or um, not as well known things. And I think just as humans, when you start out with anything, you do just kind of trust the most popular options anyway. Yeah, you do. Like, you know, if you're buying something, you always look at the best sellers and whatever the best seller is, you're like, you know, if it's good for them, it's good for me. Yeah, it's really, I'm wondering like, it's, yeah, it's like when you go to a cafe and you're like, all right, what's everyone get? (laughs) It must be good, right? Yeah, yeah. And so when I was younger, that's kind of, back then, that's kind of why I started there. And I guess for the other reasons, that's just why I've stayed there. And the good thing is like with index investing, you're going to get market returns anyway. Yeah, and do we really need hugely higher than market returns? Is it worth the risk? Well, I don't know if it is, to be honest. I don't know if it is. Do you have any actively managed funds? My So, our version of um, Super is called KiwiSaver, and my KiwiSaver is in an actively managed fund, but that's because um, under a certain amount of money, it is free, completely fees-free, so I'm keeping it there for now. And then the idea is when I reach the threshold, um, I'll move it out to a more passive form of investing, mm. but otherwise not, I don't really believe in it too much. Yeah, cool. What's next for Girls That Invest, the podcast? Well, we've got our book coming out this year, which will be whoop, whoop. very fun, very cool. Um, I, I'm really excited to actually release it because – so many people will ask us like what's the best investing book you can recommend and it's always you know the um intelligent investor but we always say it like the intelligent investor but disclaimer you're gonna hate the book the book's really useful but it's very large if you're a new investor you know it's hard to digest i don't think anyone's picked it up and just read it you know cover to cover and you know in a couple of days it's not one of those 
so it'd be nice to have something a little bit more relatable and accessible. Yeah, that's awesome. Tell us about your online course. So we've got a course. We um, have the A to Z Investing in Stock Market Masterclass. Um, So we did one last year. It was so good. We had 500 people join and a lot of people wanted it again this year. So we've actually got our enrollments open right now. Um, They close on Wednesday. um, So we only open it for a couple of of days in the year. So if you're listening and you're- That's tomorrow if you're listening to this live. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you're not listening too late in the week, it's still open. And um, I'd love to give the MMM listeners a discount. So if you just type in MMM, put that into the checkout code, you get 15% off. um, And it's really, really great way to learn how to invest and just kind of know everything you need to know from the start to the end and you're sorted for life. That's awesome. Thanks for doing that. I didn't know you were going to do that. I should have asked for an affiliate code, but there you go. <laughs> I will send one. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I'm just being a, a loser as usual. Well, Sam, thanks for hanging out with me and guest hosting an episode. John couldn't make it this um, for this week's episode. So, when you want the best, you've got to go to Girls That Invest. Oh, we should have made that our quote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. You can hear Girls That Invest wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can follow them on Instagram. You can sign up to their course. And, yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun and we'll get Sim and Sonia back when their book comes out later in the year. Yes. And you guys can um, talk about your book here. Tell your publisher. They can uh, advertise it here, whatever. It's all good. I'm sure it'll be good quality. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was very nice. I could honestly keep answering these questions. They were really good. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks again. No worries. All right, everyone. See you soon. Bye. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.